calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot-button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. This episode of Homestead on the Corner was brought to you by our supporters on Patreon. If you'd like to support the show, then please go to patreon.com slash homesteadcorner and check out our donor rewards. Good morning, everyone. This is Trevor Van Winkle, and you're listening to Homestead on the Corner. I think that right now, everyone can relate to this scenario. A massive, unforeseen disturbance to the familiar world shakes the simple, comfortable life of an average, everyday person. This disruption changes everything and makes the way they normally do things impossible. They know they have to change in order to survive in this new normal. They may not want to, and more than likely, they don't know how they need to change. But in the words of Sammy Davis Jr., something's gotta give, something's gotta give, Something's gotta give. But change is uncomfortable, frightening, and more than anything, awkward. We all spend our entire lives avoiding it, fine-tuning our behavior to the way our world has always been, and rehearsing to perform the act known as us. We're accustomed to speaking, moving, and working in a very specialized, specific way. We may not necessarily like that way of being or what we might get out of it, but we're comfortable with it. And with our brains still hardwired for survival instincts, comfortable translates to safe. Ambiguous or uncertain, on the other hand, mean danger. Since we don't know what something really is, our brains treat it as dangerous, whether or not it really is. Because in the time period before we were firmly on top of the food chain, nine times out of ten it was dangerous to the point of being deadly. Times have obviously changed. Our brains have not. Adapting to the unfamiliar and uncomfortable parts of life is a vital stage of development for modern humans. If we can't adapt, then we remain childish, insulated, and fearful of the larger, globalized world surrounding us, full of new and wonderful, but often uncomfortable, ideas, cultures, and ways of being. This adaptation is often dramatized in storytelling, along with the tendency of human beings to resist it. When something unknown steps in, we resist it tooth and nail and try to go back to the way things were. 
it's not necessarily healthy either for individual human beings or humanity at large, but it's built into our DNA. Until something in our brains fundamentally changes, which will likely take thousands, if not millions of years, we will fight change until our knuckles bleed before admitting that something's gotta give. Between the hook, inciting incident, and the first plot point, the break into Act 2, we get to meet a character who may be remarkable in their own world, but isn't ready for the challenge to come. By showing this character as relatively balanced and comfortable in the niche they've always occupied, you give the reader or audience a sense of what needs to change, what lies the character believes about themselves and others, and what fundamental parts of themselves are holding them back. This countdown to launch, this waiting before the story really takes off, is some of the richest ground for seeding character growth and change, if you use it right. So, let's get digging. Character is change. This is a fact we discussed all the way back in Lesson 5. In John Truby's The Anatomy of Story, he says, quote, You must think of your hero as a range of change, a range of possibilities from the very beginning. End quote. In other words, the self is not static, inflexible, eternal, or unchanging, but constantly growing and changing by degrees, depending on the challenge presented to it. As in life, so in story. Personally speaking, I was definitely not the same person when I graduated high school as I was the day I graduated college. Nor am I the same person now as I was then. Yet, all of those snapshot individuals, the person I was at those very particular moments in my life, exist within the range of possibilities that make up Trevor. For a long time, this confused and aggravated me. I remember turning this frustration into angry journal pages and sketches, with one particularly memorable drawing featuring all the different versions of myself around the periphery of the page, with giant angular pencil scratches in the center spelling out the words, Who am I? That's a question I still don't have a singular answer for, and probably never will. Back when I was young and still thought the world, or at least my interior world, was or should be black and white, I expected that there was a definitive self I could find. Once I did, I imagined, the world outside would start to make sense as well. That was around 2015, so I'll let you guess how that plan went. In my fervor to rationalize and organize the world into concrete categories and dialectics, I failed to realize that everything in reality exists on a spectrum of possibilities including my own personality. Day to day, and sometimes even hour to hour, the center of self drifts up and down that spectrum based on everything from environment to emotional state to whether or not I'm hungry. Yet we can often track general movements in our own sense of self when certain forces or circumstances continually move us in one direction or another. For instance, when I began working with the local theater companies in Mammoth as a stage technician, I began to move more towards the role of showman and entertainer than reclusive artist or student. Now, this was a part of the spectrum I hadn't really played in before, and sometimes I'm still surprised by the level of artistic and personal confidence that I'm capable of. It's still not much, but it's more than I ever imagined I would have. Yet, I'm still Trevor. This person and the person who was too afraid to go back to the counter at restaurants and ask for extra silverware are the same. 
part of the same range of possibility and change. I'm sure if you look back on your own life, you can see the same phenomena. And, in some cases, the experiences that force sudden, drastic change and adaptation. These experiences are often psychological traumas of one degree or another. Experiences that interrupt our continuous sense of self and make it difficult to process new information. Because they interrupt the ongoing flow of day-in, day-out, back-and-forth change, they stand out as mile markers in our lives, whether we want them to or not. The person I was before my grandfather died was not the person I was afterwards, and the change that occurred as a result of that loss seemed abrupt and radical compared to the normal process of gradual personality shift. I think it's safe to say that we all have experiences that, to one degree or another, could be described as traumas. It could be as simple as the end of a relationship or the loss of a job, or as major as a permanently incapacitating injury. But even the people who lead the most privileged, charmed lives and seem to be completely free of trauma must eventually face the ultimate reality check. Death. We might romanticize it later on, but in the moment there is nothing peaceful or beautiful about death. The sudden shock of loss is the experience that most disrupts our belief in the continuance of self, that we can or will continue just as we are forever. We believe it not because it's true, but because it's what our experience has always been. Death is a disruption, a dislocation, a dissolution of everything we have to accept as given about our own existence just to keep going. Everyone believes they're immortal when they're young. Not because we were taught to believe it, but because that's our experience. We woke up this morning alive and ourselves, as we did every morning as far back as we can remember. Nothing in our young memories suggests that life, the continual process of being ourselves and gradually growing and changing, will ever end. Life will always be this way, we think as children. In the words of the castaway, quoting from Cato, It must be so. Plato, the reasonest well. Else whence this pleasing hope, this fond desire, this longing after immortality. The stars shall fade away, the sun himself grow dim with age, and nature sink in years. But thou shalt flourish in immortal youth, unhurt amidst the war of elements, the wreck of matter, and the crush of worlds. We believe that if nothing changes, nothing changes. But there is nothing more fundamentally untrue about life, the universe, and everything. If nothing changes, everything decays, dissolves, and returns to basic forms. That's the basic principle of entropy in physics, senescence in biology, and character change in storytelling. Within a narrative framework, a character who refuses to change in response to shifting circumstances doesn't have the luxury of skating by on half-measures and patchwork adaptations. That's because story is life amplified. The stakes are always higher in storytelling, if only because they are made clearly visible by the storyteller. We see, hear, and read what a failure to adapt and change will cost the characters, whereas in our own lives we're often blind to the risks except in hindsight. Not so in storytelling. In a story, if a character is confronted again and again with their problem and decides to keep doing what they've always done, the story becomes a tragedy and they will fall, either spectacularly or ignominiously, by the end of it. If nothing changes, everything ends. At the beginning of the first act, your characters should share these common misbeliefs to one degree or another. 
Even as I stand here denouncing the foolishness of them, I subconsciously expect that tomorrow will be much the same as yesterday, and the day before that, and the year before that. I expect to wake up every morning as some version of the Trevor Van Winkle I know, directly connected to the person I was and will be with no end or beginning. In the words of the Twelfth Doctor in the Doctor Who episode Heaven Sent, There are two events in everyone's life that no one remembers. Two moments experienced by every living being, yet no one remembers anything about them. Nobody remembers being born, and nobody remembers dying. Life feels eternal and unchanging as we count down the seconds, hours, days, and years of our lives, moment by moment. Yet, looking back on the sweep of history and our own personal narrative, we see that change was constant and unstoppable. And when we experience a psychological trauma, the course of that change is altered, accelerated, and amplified. I think this is one of the reasons why human beings spend so much time telling and listening to stories. It helps us square the circle, so to speak, between the way life feels and the way life really is. It makes sense of ongoing and often uncomfortable change within an experience that feels unchanging or unchangeable. Like a time-lapse video, it allows us to glimpse processes and patterns normally too small or subtle to notice. It increases our understanding and appreciation for the little things in life by letting us see their context more clearly. Stories help us to make sense of our lives, and stories of change help us to work through the pain of learning and changing in response to traumas. This is why your portrayal of character in the first act is so important. We have to see ourselves in these fictional people if we're going to learn anything from them. We need to be convinced that they woke up that morning the same way we did, believing that this is the way life is and it will never change. Whether that life's the life of a genius billionaire playboy philanthropist or a plucky street urchin, we need to see the characters living their normal lives on a day-to-day -day basis, believing in it and seeing it as solid and real and unchanging as our own lives. This is one of the key sources of empathy in your story. Now just as a quick refresher, empathy is different from sympathy in that it does not depend on pity or compassion, but rather the ability to relate to and feel with the characters. Sympathy occurs with characters who are good and suffering in undeserved ways, but empathy is looking at a character who might be horrible and prosperous and saying, you know what? I get where they're coming from. We can empathize with immoral and even terrible people if they share the same fundamental human belief as we do, that this is the way life is and always will be. When we recognize these basic universal emotions and beliefs in a character, we find ourselves looking out through their eyes and trying to understand their behavior, whether we want to or not. It's often not a very pleasant experience. We see their inherent flaws more clearly than we could ever see our own, and as a result, we want them to change. Our brains anticipate a change, projecting a character arc that will either be delivered on or subverted by the narrative. And when the inciting incident arrives, we see it as what it is, the beginning of a countdown to radical, fundamental, and sudden growth.
but oftentimes, the character doesn't change right away. In fact, they actively resist the impulse to change. This is yet another response rooted in biology. Living things are, by necessity, conservative in their actions, never risking a more extreme course of action when a more familiar, lower-risk option seems viable. This gives them a better chance of surviving 9 times out of 10. But human beings are not strictly bound to the laws of animal biology, and in a world that changes and shifts as rapidly as Earth in the information age, sticking with what's always worked is 9 times out of 10 not a viable option. The conservative, cautious approach worked when changes to species and social groups had to be communicated through the immeasurably slow process of genetic adaptation and evolution. Now, changes in society are powered by a highly reactive, openly available, and ever-evolving information landscape. New approaches to old problems, informed by technological or social progress, overpower and eventually overtake the old ways, no matter how hard certain sectors of the populace cling to them. This is for two reasons. One, the new way is better adapted to the current environment because it was produced within and by it. And two, the fundamental law of senescence means that the older generation who prefer the old way is replaced by one more familiar with a new one. That new way then becomes the new old way, and a new new way of doing things rises, is resisted, and then becomes the establishment. That's the general cycle of societal progress. It's also the cyclical model of character growth, best exemplified by Joseph Campbell's The Hero with a Thousand Faces. The journey outwards into the extraordinary world always leads back home, with the hero carrying a new boon of knowledge and insight that will change the ordinary world, but never transform it into the extraordinary world. The new information is synthesized, absorbed, and used to heal whatever is wrong with the protagonist's world, but then it just becomes the new normal one that will eventually need to be transformed again by another journey into the dark and nebulous world of adventure. Change, for characters, people, and society, is an ongoing and never-ending process. But the seed of it is always contained within the initial conditions, the ordinary world, the thesis, and the untested or unchallenged protagonist. This initial state of being suggests a range of possibilities, made visible through character actions, words, and choices. For instance, is this character inherently or just necessarily selfish? In the Disney adaptation, Aladdin steals in order to eat and survive on the streets, but gives his food away to others when their need is greater. A diamond in the rough, indeed. On the other hand, Gordon Gekko is a man who will never go hungry no matter how much money he loses, yet he backstabs, lies, and inside trades in pursuit of every last dollar he can get his hands on. Greed, for lack of a better word, he famously says, is good. The range of possibility for these two characters can be extrapolated from their introduction in Act 1. Gekko will always be limited by his greed and insatiable need for success. This is what drives him as a human being. Aladdin, on the other hand, could rise to become practically anything if he could just escape the lowly station given to him, which he eventually does, rising to the royal family of Agrabah. Clearly demonstrating this initial condition, along with any inherent character contradictions that will be resolved within the story, makes the arc of the character feel much more earned. A major part of establishing that arc occurs just after the inciting incident, showing how far they will go just to resist changing in the first place. This part of the narrative both humanizes the characters and shows how difficult it will be for them to change. In Save the Cat, Blake Snyder calls this section the debate. 
Quote, It's the last section for the hero to say, This is crazy, and we need him or her to realize that. Unquote. A reluctant hero, like Hamlet, will resist the call no matter how strong their need is. In fact, Shakespeare uses Hamlet's reluctance to cross into the unknown to define his Hamartia, and give us one of the most iconic, enduring, and multifaceted characters in fiction. But while Hamlet is probably the most extreme example, many other protagonists resist the call to change until they have exhausted all other options. Or at least all the options they think are easier or simpler. For instance, Chief Brody is kept from acting on his knowledge of the shark attack in Jaws by the town's greedy mayor, choosing to obey authority for fear of losing his job. He's a family man, after all, with a wife and kids to take care of. They are his first priority, and while there's still doubt as to the level of danger, he will protect his family's livelihood first. In the film Knives Out, Marta Cabrera literally debates with Harlan Thrombey when he proposes that she, and major spoiler alert here, ready? Three, two, one. Allow him to commit suicide to prevent her lethal, accidental mix-up of medications from being discovered. Of course she wouldn't accept this course of action right away, She's an inherently good person, and a nurse who firmly believes that she must first do no harm. In The Hobbit, Bilbo Baggins initially resists the call to adventure out of fear. He literally faints when the danger is described to him. However, once we've been introduced to the inherent contradiction between his Baggins nature and took proclivity for adventure, we see the latter overpower the former as he runs out the doorway and chases down Gandalf, Thorin, and the rest of the dwarves. All of these resistances of the call demonstrate something fundamental about the characters. Whatever is holding them back, or some fundamental character trait that defines and humanizes them. However, the way in which a character doesn't resist the call can be just as revealing of the inner person. Luke Skywalker decides to leave the planet with Obi-Wan the moment his aunt and uncle die. He gets emotional for a moment, but then immediately turns around and says he wants to go. This further demonstrates something we already knew about Luke. He doesn't want to stay where he is, and his entire life has been about trying to get away. The death of Uncle Owen in Aunt Beru is the event that broke the one thin strand still tying him to the ground. <laughs> Young Skywalker, always looking to the horizon. Indiana Jones and James Bond almost never debate or resist the call at all. Neither does Ethan Hunt of the Mission Impossible series, which is a quality that director Christopher McQuarrie has leaned into in the latest films, to show his character as an obsessive but highly skilled maniac with a personal drive bordering on a death wish. For characters of this type, the mission, job, or search is always more important than any little voice in their head that might say, no wait, this is crazy. Frodo Baggins, unlike his uncle Bilbo, shows almost no resistance to his call to adventure. He, like Luke, wants to leave home and explore, even though he loves the Shire. In fact, it is partly his love for the Shire that ultimately convinces him to leave it. As a student of history, he knows exactly what the One Ring is capable of if Sauron gets his hands on it. Or if it gets on his hands, I guess. He's moral, dutiful, and loyal above all else, and it is his love for home and hearth rather than a disdain for it that prompts him to cross the threshold into the wider world of Middle-earth. There are hundreds of other examples, but it should be clear from these that the question of whether or not to have your protagonist resist the call to adventure is not a binary, on-off option. Like everything else in life and storytelling, there's a spectrum of options, 
all depending on the type of character they represent and what you need to communicate about them in the first place. By knowing how they're going to change, you can effectively set them up in the ordinary world and make their range of possibility clear and compelling to the reader. In the words of the 11th Doctor, we all change when you think about it. We're all different people all through our lives. And that's okay, that's good, you gotta keep moving so long as you remember all the people that you used to be. Thank you for listening to this episode of Homestead on the Corner. Today's character growth galvanation was written and produced by Trevor Van Winkle and featured music from Lauren Baker and Jesse Hagen. Speaking of beginnings, our new fiction show, The Sheridan Tapes, begins this Friday, April 24th. Keep an eye on this feed for updates. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Trevor underscore VW for more info. And check out patreon.com slash homesteadcorner if you want to support our little production team and get early access to all new episodes. Next episode, we'll be talking about the final step of your first act, crossing the first threshold into the extraordinary world of change and adventure. New episodes of this podcast release every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. So be sure to subscribe so you don't miss it. Well, that's about all for now. From the homestead in the corner, have a great day and keep writing. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.